0: Welcome to this episode of Tetlink in Conversation. I'm Eddie Grant, Director of Technical Connection. During our conversations we seek to review the topical bulletins published on Techlink, our knowledge management tool for all things tax, trust, pensions and much, much more. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Barbara Gardner, our senior consultant in Tax and Trusts. Hello Barbara, how are you?
1: I'm very well thank you Eddie. Nice to talk again.
0: Yep, excellent. Um, so I've got myself ready. I've got all my notes ready, and most importantly, I've got my f- one of my favourite teas. So it's a green gum powder tea. Um, what's going to get you through this podcast, Barbara?
1: I think my cup of coffee will get me through.
0: <laughs> Your coffee, excellent. Um, well, I asked uh, um, to catch up today really to consider your area of expertise of trusts and and when we last spoke, uh, you talked about some of the the common mistakes or issues with trusts and uh, and I think you sort of put together uh, five key areas that that we could talk about. So um, perhaps we could start, if I may, uh, with the first one, which is what is a fair trust
1: right well yes as i said i i've decided to pick on on five uh areas that seem to be coming up more often than than others in relation to to trust and variety of trust and and the first one which uh, it seems to be quite confusing is is exactly what is a bird trust actually about 30 years ago my first ever question when i joined technical connection was to do with bird trust and uh, i had to call. Um, a gentleman at the then in on revenue. And the first thing he said, you will appreciate that there is no definition of a bear trust in legislation. Uh, but then actually he was quite helpful. Since then, of course, we've got all sorts of definitions for various purposes, but it, it sometimes it doesn't help. And sometimes it doesn't help because even some literature from the providers uh, may be quite confusing. So like bear trust is, of course, a trust where someone is absolutely entitled and generally that will be a minor child and uh, or or disabled person perhaps but uh, usually it is a child and especially in England and Wales there is very little formalities uh, that you need to comply with to create a bare trust you can just make a declaration for example you can invest in unit trust and designate it for a beneficiary as long as you are determined to make a gift and you name the beneficiary as a beneficial owner, you will have effectively a trust. You don't have any other provisions written up in such a trust or or simple declaration, which means that statutory provisions will apply, but nevertheless, you will have a trust. Now, the important thing to remember is that if you have a beneficiary named who is absolutely entitled, that entitlement is from day one. Right, And the most common mistake that people make with bare trust is what happens at 18. And often you will see a literature about bare or absolute trust which says a oh, beneficiary becomes absolutely entitled at 18. That is absolutely incorrect. A beneficiary under a bare trust or absolute trust is entitled absolutely from day one. Of course, what happens is that until that beneficiary attains age of legal majority, which is 18 in England, Wales, 16 in Scotland, then they can't do anything about it. They can't demand anything because they basically have no capacity. If they had capacity, they could just take the money and invest in their own name. So what happens at 18 or 16 in Scotland is that the child can then demand that the money or whatever is in the trust fund, is basically made over to them. There's nothing else happens. Nothing happens automatically because that's another question that often people get confused. So does it mean that at eighteen the assets automatically vest in the beneficiary? No, nothing ever happens automatically in law. No, nothing happens automatically. So if you want to, for example, transfer a holding in unit trust to a beneficiary, you need to have stock. Transfer form, nothing will happen automatically. Equally, a beneficiary who is 18, for example, in the US, will not be able to demand that the investment is encashed and money paid over to them. So, if you've got investment in a providers account, they only deal with whoever the investor was initially. What, of course, the beneficiary can do is sue the trustee effectively or the investor who's holding the money on their behalf and say i want my money and we've come across these sort of situations of course and then the 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 investor or whoever it was a grandparent or auntie who invested this money i said well you're not old enough to look after this money i'm gonna keep it for you and of course the beneficiary can say okay you keep money and then let me have it when i want it alternatively you may say no i want it now and it can go to court and demand it and basically win the case so that's basically how it works so again the important thing to remember is that entitlement from day one nothing happens automatically at 18 and this is one of the key misunderstandings because you see a lot of literature, which says the beneficiary becomes entitled to something at eighteen or sixteen. No, they become only entitled to claim the money. That's all.
0: I think, like a lot of uh, parents um, who saved money for their for their children, uh, which I did, um, it, it, you know, even when the children became eighteen, uh, as a as a as a parent or grandparent. Obviously, you you know you're obliged to tell them that this money exists, and 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 as we know, the reality is with a lot of parents, grandparents, is that they'll probably still keep that money to one side um, before before telling them or, or telling them when there's an appropriate moment. So I think there's there's a there's a mix, isn't there, between the what is the the legal position and also what people actually do in those circumstances.
1: Well, that is often the case. Um, The point to remember is that with a bear trust, unless we have parental settlement provisions applying, all the income and gains will be taxed on the beneficiary. And once the beneficiary has their own uh, obligation to deal with the tax affairs, which will be age 18, then, of course, they need to know what income or gains they might have. And if you don't tell them... (laughs) You potentially might be in trouble. Of course, the, in most cases, at that age, there is not going to be massive amount of income to to declare or, or by a self assessment or whatever. So, so I understand that's that's how it works. But you know, then again, I always say, well, you know, you, your beneficiary can go and study law and then take you to court at worst.
0: <laughs> well, that's <laughs> worrying, Phil, because that's actually what my daughter. <laughs> it's training to be so uh, we'll move on quickly after that one, then, shall we? Um, so the second sort of key area that, um, that you um want to highlight is in relation to uh the pre 2006 trusts and what happens if a named beneficiary dies,
1: right? Well, when we're talking about pre 2006 trusts, we're talking about pre 2006 interest in possession trusts, usually interest in possession, flexible. Uh, trusts that uh, until March 2006 were typically offered by all providers, uh, unlike the discretionary trusts that have been offered since then. Now, you can't believe it, it's 17 and a bit years. And uh, uh, so there are many, many advisors in financial services who may have never come across this sort of thing. However, if you're dealing with existing investors in particular, uh, there is a lot of them who do have those pre-2006 trusts. Of course, they were you a know, great idea because you could make any amount of gift still retain flexibility as to who should benefit under the trust and it would have been a debt that came out of your account after seven years. Now, I think most people understand that there is something special about those trusts and ideally you shouldn't do anything with them. In particular, you shouldn't change the beneficiaries under uh, uh, this trust during lifetime because that might upset the, the transitional status of the trust and and the trust will, uh, well, in respect of addition at least, will be treated as a relevant property trust subject to all these horrible IHT charges. Now, there are special provisions legislation to protect those pre-2006 trusts, so if nothing happens, then, then uh, there'll be no IHT implications. However sometimes things happen that people don't actually have control over such as the death of the beneficiary who is named as the beneficiary with interest in possession now if the beneficiary dies then what happens we know that the value of the trust fund is in the estate of the beneficiary uh, entitled to interest in possession under this trust now they die you know it's got to go somewhere so what happens now in some trusts pre-2006, there will be a provision if there is more than one beneficiary that they will benefit as joint tenants, for example, so it will pass automatically to the other one. In most cases, though, there will be no such provision, so there may be one beneficiary named or two beneficiaries named or, or more in proportions, and then you're looking at the proportion of the value that is in the estate of the beneficiary, and then what happens? Obviously, there will be a change of beneficiary, because once your beneficiary is dead, somebody else must become entitled to it. So the question is, does it mean that you then have a problem and the trust will become subject to relevant property provisions? And the answer is no, you don't have a problem, because when the rules for pre-2006 trusts change, there are special provisions dealing with those trusts holding life assurance policies. It doesn't apply to anything else, but with a life assurance policy in trust, which of course includes all bonds, that are whole-of-life policies typically, there is a special provision which says that if a beneficiary entitled to income changes as a result of death of that beneficiary, then the status of the trust will not change. It's so. In effect, if there is a new beneficiary entitled to income, so there was a change of beneficiary arising following the death of the beneficiary, then the trust will continue to be transitional serial interest, which is the estate interest in possession, not a relevant property trust. Now, what is important to remember, that this change is only applied if there's a change as a result of death. So, one beneficiary dies, somebody else becomes entitled, and then actually, it doesn't matter how many times it happens. So you may have a serial, I don't know, serial series of deaths, one after another. It still will continue to be transitional serial interest as long as the change is a result of death. Now, there is a problem with some of this because somebody dies. And then what happens? If there is no provision under a trust, as to who should benefit, which actually in most of these pre-2006 trust, there is not going to be any, then you'd be looking at the will or intestacy of that beneficiary, right? So you have a named beneficiary, Adam Smith. Adam dies, who benefits under Adam's will, his wife Eve. So now Eve is actually the beneficiary entitled to interest in possession under this trust. Now, potentially, that Eve is not actually a beneficiary under the trust, according to the trust terms. So what happens? Well, the trustees have a duty to deal with the trust fund in accordance with the trust. So Eve, as a spouse of of the beneficiary, is not actually beneficiary under the trust. She cannot benefit. However, there is this fiction which will say that Actually, under this trust, currently, she is entitled to inches in possession. It's a TSI, trust continues as it was, but in practice, she cannot benefit. If actually the trustees come to the point of distributing trust fund, they will have to change the beneficiary then, because she's not entitled under the trust. So there are these potential difficulties that may arise, but... What is important to remember, if you don't want to change the nature of the trust, then the trustee shouldn't do anything during lifetime of the beneficiary. Unless there is actually need to distribute the assets, then the beneficiary shouldn't be changed as long as you actually want the status of the trust to continue. Now, there is one other point to remember. In some cases, Settler may have named a child, sometimes even a minor child, as a beneficiary entitled to income, right? Then what happens if that child were to die? As I said, what will happen is that the beneficiary under the will on intestacy will benefit. If you have a minor child dying, which hopefully doesn't happen so often, but it does happen, then under intestacy it will be the parents who will benefit from that interest so then what will happen effectively the set law will become entitled to interest in possession under their own trust right which potentially well it should immediately result in a question like "Well, does it work is it a gift with reservation what will happen well it won't be a gift with reservation because the entitlement happens by operation of law and not as a result of gift. Nevertheless, it's back in the estate of the settler, so something else will have to be happening and then the trustees will be looking to make some appointment and uh, then you really need to call, uh, you know, trust, tax and protection for advice, basically. So it's one thing to remember that the the protection for pre-2006 trusts, it's not just in relation to carrying on premium payments, spares potential, increasing benefits as long as we're within the policy conditions, but this important point about the death of the beneficiary, which is something that we have no control of. I think everybody knows, right? Don't change any beneficiaries during lifetime, it could cause problems. But then if something happens as a result of death, you have no control of it, you have to be very careful what you should do then.
0: Yeah. I remember um, I remember back in 2006, there was that when, when uh, uh, the rules changed, there was that period, wasn't there, where it, was, it was about six months with the company I was with at the time, where there were no trusts and no one knew, what to do at all with with trusts and, uh, um, and and it you know certainly for people like yourself and me who were t- going out talking about trusts, it kept us busy for for a long time. And now we're seventeen years on, and you, and you're still you're, you're still talking about the changes. Uh, just shows mm-hmm, how yes. profound how profound they were at the time, and and uh, what what a major change it was for a lot of financial planners and their clients.
1: Exactly, and they only called it alignment. Remember? Yes,
0: yeah. yes. Like
1: a lot more than alignment.
0: Yes, uh, so that so that so the next area um, you wanted to to look at was in relation to uh, default beneficiaries under a discretionary trust, and and uh, why why are they needed, um, uh, and and are they entitled to anything? Do, do you want to sort of cover that one?
1: right okay well that that is another question and actually we've had a recent case which which caused a lot of uh, uh, confusion uh which i i'll come back to in a minute but basically we just talked about interest in possession trust you've got a default beneficiary name that was entitled to income and with pre-2006 and it's certain uh will trust they will be treated as owning the trust assets with a discretionary trust of course dif- Default beneficiaries' role is completely different because under a discretionary trust, the trustees have the discretion. And yet we still have this box in most draft trust forms which says name the default beneficiaries. So why do we have to do it? Uh, What's more confusing is that very often people think that by naming that person, they actually, this is the person who will benefit under the trust. Right? Now... Default beneficiary under discretionary trust will be beneficiary that will benefit only if nothing happens by the end of trust period. These days it's 125 years. Before 2010, we'll have 80-year trust period, still a long time. Right. The reason why we have it is because under trust law, you must be certain at any time who are the beneficiaries under the trust. And that includes end of the trust. So if there's nobody named could see trust going on for 125 years, and then what happens? If there's nobody named, the trustees will not know what to do. What's more, if the trust period ends, that will be the end of trust powers. So nothing can happen. Trustees can't make any more appointments because trust period has ended and there is nobody entitled. So as you can see, you need to have something in the trust which will say what will happen at the end of that trust period. If you don't name anybody, I mean, it happens. There is something called resulting trust for the settlor, which means if you know you, you don't know who might benefit, it's so all going back to the settlor. Now that's not a good idea, of course, because the reason why you have trust is to move things away from the settlor. So that's very good reason. Now, for tax purposes, important to say it won't make it a gift reservation, even if there is a possibility of it returning to the set law, because again, it, it it comes back to the set law as operation of law rather than uh, as a result of a gift. But if there were al- any other provisions relevant, for example, for income tax, it would make it a set law interested trust. Now, is it necessary to name these people? Now, some trusts from some providers actually have usually kind of convoluted clause which says that somebody who is uh, uh, still there or who benefits under the estate of the last individual alive will benefit etc so in theory you could have a clause which means that you don't have to name anybody because you kind of think well what's the point of naming people who are not going to be alive in 125 years but That is, again, the the point that some people think that if you name somebody, then the settler thinks this is the person who's going to benefit. Now, settler needs to understand that that's not the case, but at the same time, if they think that this perhaps might be some sort of guidance for the trustees, fair enough. The one thing which actually caused confusion recently was when the settler named his wife as a default beneficiary right and then we said well you can't do it really i mean they've done it they signed the trust so then what happens under this particular trust the spouse is excluded from benefit right the widow or widower of the settler is included as benefit so the person can benefit after the settler has died but during the lifetime of the settler the spouse cannot benefit and there are there is tax reasons for it not inheritance tax but other reasons so you know some trusts allow some don't. in this particular case the spouse was excluded as a beneficiary but the widow and the widower was included. so what happened here with what a named spouse as a default beneficiary as a potential we have a conflict now the settler says this is a life insurance policy whole of life that will only pay after my death. so after my death, my spouse is going to be my widow. So surely that's okay, right? Well, actually, it wasn't because it caused conflict with the trust provisions. I mean, in this particular case, we had a situation where they needed to transfer the funds into another trust, and under that other trust, the spouse was named the beneficiary, so it turned out we couldn't transfer it to, to this other trust because there was a conflict. So even though... Uh, it, it may not have made much difference you have to look at the trust provisions look at the conflict and say well you know even though the you know, intention is that she will only benefit after your death by naming her you know you basically kind of messed up the trust provisions because you have a conflict and then what do you do you know if, if it's excluded it's excluded she cannot benefit all sorts of problems can arise so that's what we need to remember right? Explain to the client, if you're an advisor, what does it mean, right? If you want your trustees to have a guidance who should benefit, write a letter of wishes.
0: And um, just thinking about the the sort of next area, um, and it comes up quite a lot around loan trusts. um, So just thinking about the death of the... Uh, 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 after the the lender's death um you know what's the implications what do you need to think about and I know this is this is something we we get a lot of questions on
1: exactly it's it seems like a question comes up every week about what to do with a long trust and uh, my advice to anybody is just follow the logical process of what happens when someone dies. Because typically, the questions that we have, so what do we do? Can we have a deal of variation? Or can you waive the loan? Can executors waive the loan? And it's like, you know, the the forms, there is this thing like we just can get the form signed here and we'll deal with the problem. Forget the forms, just follow the logical process, what happens when someone dies, right? With a loan plan, you have a settler of the trust who has lent the money, right? He's a lender and... Often, lenders will choose to have the loan repaid and they will take periodic withdrawals and and they will have the loan repaid. Uh, Surprisingly often, people don't take any loan repayments at all. So then they die and surprise, surprise, on the one hand, the fund has grown considerably great. On the other hand, the loan is still in the trust. So what do we do? Now, as I said, what you need to do is just think logically what happens when someone dies. Someone dies, their personal representatives, executors, if there is a will, like administrators, if there is no will, their duty is to get together all the assets, pay the debts, pay inheritance tax, and distribute the assets in accordance with the will. So the first thing you do is to look at the will, what happens, and then... Obviously, if you have liabilities to pay off, if uh, there, is, there are specific legacies, then you might have guidance what should happen. But especially if there are liabilities, you know, a mortgage outstanding or something else, then the first duty of these executors will be to get the cash and pay off the liabilities, right? So if there is a loan outstanding, so that's an asset in the estate, then the executive will be looking for cash to repay any liabilities. If that's the most useful source of cash, then they will ask the trustees to repay the loan. So the trustees will have to surrender the bond or part of it and repay the loan, end of story, right? Then the rest of the estate is distributed. What happens if there are no liabilities? There is some other money to pay inheritance tax if there is any to pay, so there is actually no need for the executors to in cash uh, to sorry to ask for repayment of the loan. So the trustees have to surrender the bond. Again, as I said, first thing to look is the will. Does it say anything about the loan? Ideally, and this is what we advise to everybody please make sure that the set law has a will provision, what should happen to the outstanding loan. Like I, know, I leave my outstanding loan to my spouse, to my children, to whoever. Something in the will that deals with that. If there is nothing, then you're looking who is entitled to the residue of the estate. Now, once you know who actually is going to benefit from this asset, then the question is how do we deal with it? Again, the person entitled to it may say, I'd rather have cash. In which case, the executors will say to the trustees, surrender the bond, give me the cash I paid over to the beneficiaries. On the other hand, if the beneficiary under the will says, I'm quite happy to have the bond, you know, to carry on with the loan effectively, Right? so the bond doesn't get surrendered, very often the same person will be a beneficiary under the trust, under the loan trust, as under the will. In which case, there is nothing to stop the executors to from assigning the asset in the estate, which is the loan, the right to the loan repayment, to that new beneficiary. Now, there are potential problems if the beneficiaries actually are the trustees if there's more than one beneficiary entitled to residue. So ideally you should have a, a, a will provision deals with it. but in most cases if it's just one person, then the executors can say yeah you can have the right to this loan and this is called assent. Like with any other asset, with any other asset in the estate, what happens when the administration of the estate is completed, the executors do their accounts and they then transfer the assets from the estate they are administering to the beneficiaries under the will. This is called ascent. So, like somebody dies, remember, asset is in the estate, this is your right to have the loan repaid to you. Somebody else says, I'm quite happy to inherit this right. The executors then say, "Okay, you can have it," and they sign a little written document, basically like you know, in uh, 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 distributing the assets. And this is your entitlement, the will, and you are now entitled to this loan repayment. And then, effectively, that beneficiary steps into the shoes of the original lender. So nothing needs to happen until that beneficiary, who is now the new. Lender says, I want some of the loan back or all of it back, etc. So this is how it works. And if you remember the process, right, this this is how it works. So you now simply have somebody else perhaps entitled to it if they didn't want the cash. Then that's that's, you're back to where you started, basically. You still got the loan trust, right? Then potential uh, questions will arise when the beneficiary then says, well, I want some cash, what happens, etc. And without going through all the details how it should be done, again, you know, we've got plenty on tackling on how they should be dealt with. The one thing to take away is do not ever, ever assign a bond in satisfaction of the loan, right? So one thing you should never do is to say to the lender who says, well, I want some for the money or all of my loan back, The trustee should never say, okay, we assign the bond to you so you can then uncash the bond yourself. Don't ever do it because assignment in satisfaction of the loan is an assignment for consideration and therefore will be chargeable event. So, as I said, with anything like that, I mean, all sorts of other things can happen. You can, you know, things can be waived or whatever. But if you remember, forget about the forms. Don't ask for form first of all, right? Just look at what situation is who... Is entitled to what? What happens when? And then once we get to the situation where we know who is the new lender, if you need to encash things or change anything, we can then deal with it appropriately.
0: Yeah, and, and and as I said, loan the whole sort of area around loan loan plans is 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 definitely an area we get asked a an awful lot of questions. I think the 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 last sort of key area I think you wanted to talk about was around trusts and and you know is it possible just to, to 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 amend them? What can you do? What can't you do with trusts? Do you want to sort of explore that one as well?
1: Yeah, just quickly. Basically, I think you know the, the one important thing to remember is what we're talking about when you say amend, because again, you know we we all love plain English, so you know we like say amend this, amend that, but do we actually amend things or? are we doing something else altogether? And also, when you're talking about trust, are we talking about trust deed or actually the trust as the arrangement that exists when somebody transfers the property to the trustees? So, first of all, if you're looking at the trust document, there's not a lot you can do by way of amending it, basically. Once you've completed your trust document and executed it, that's it, right? It's there, no. Unless it's a trust in a will, which of course then it's a will trust and it's a will which you can tear up and throw away anytime you want to. If it's a lifetime trust and you've executed a a trust request or deed of trust, you can't just go back and amend it later on, right? If you made a mistake, the only way to amend the trust document would be to rectify the deed or the trust document and then you'd need to go to court to do this. Right. So, if you're talking actually amending the document, it's basically not something that is allowed. But very often, when people say, can I amend this trust, they don't mean amend the trust document, but they mean changing the terms of the trust. And that's something completely different, because you can often change the tr- terms of the trust unless the trust is fixed, and, or like an absolute trust, Or sometimes in will trust, you will have very fixed provisions, for example, income to my wife for life, and then somebody else, there's nothing you can do, you can't change it without going to court. But these days, most people would use discretionary trust or flexible trust, in which case the trustees will have powers to make various appointments. Then we're looking at not amending the trust as such, but changing the terms of the trust in accordance with whatever the trustees are allowed to do. Sometimes it's trustees, sometimes it's the settlor. And in cases like this, if somebody says, Can I can I change the beneficiary? Can I amend the trust? I want to change the beneficiaries. Right? You need to look at the trust document and see what you can do and then there may be a need to execute a deed, etc. Now, some people may say, we've amended the trust, now somebody else is beneficiary, which is fine if you want to say that. But in fact, what you've just done is the trustees or the set law executed the power of appointment in this fashion. So basically now somebody else is entitled to benefits rather than the person originally named. But it's not, strictly speaking, amending. So like I always say, words matter.
0: Excellent, thank you so much, uh, Barbara. I think you know the five areas that you've uh, covered around bear trusts and the the two thousand and six trusts and uh, default beneficiaries, loan plans, and obviously you're talking about amending trusts. Um, you know these are you know common questions, and and hopefully that your your sort of guidance and overview has has helped our listeners today. Uh, once again, thank you for your time. It's been really insightful so uh, always great to catch up thank you
1: you're very welcome
0: the content of this recording is strictly for general consideration only no action must be taken or refrained from based on the content alone professional advice must always be sought accordingly neither technical connection limited nor any of its officers employees or contractors can take responsibility for any loss occasioned as a result of any such action or inaction.